I know none of y'all ever had any classes where you would sit and and after a while start doing one of these. When is this guy ever going to hush? Uh, it, it's like it really matters, right? You've got to be here for a certain period of time. But, you know, I, I think about that fourth verse that will sit at his feet and we're not going to be going, uh, Jesus, could you move it along? Okay. Uh, could you move it along? I, you know, I've got other places to be. And, and we won't have any place other to be than to sit at his feet or walk by his side. What a glorious time that is going to be. Our scripture this evening is found in Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were singing some hymns and in our evening service, and I made the comment that that we were able to sing those hymns the way that that we were singing them because we had lived through what the 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 hymn writer was was talking about in that hymn, and we had seen that God was able and that God was always going to meet all of our needs. Listen, beloved, there's a, a lot of things in, in this world. You know, I, I, I do a lot of reading, and, and I do a lot of secular reading. I, I want to understand what the world is thinking, because if I don't understand what the world is thinking, then, then I can't help us understand how to talk to the world about faith in Jesus. And the one thing, the older I get, the one thing is that every day I become more and more confident in the Word of God. I have lived long enough to see God do what God has repeatedly said that He will do. And even though I spent my undergraduate time in among a group of men that did not believe the Bible to be authoritative, did not believe the Bible to be infallible, did not believe the Bible to be inerrant, I did. And because I sat under their teaching, that meant God forced me to come to be able to understand the infallibility of Scripture and to understand the inerrancy of Scripture with just him and me, okay? With just him showing me how reliable his word was and how every single word of his word could be trusted. Beloved, God wants us to be confident in his word. That's what the psalmist is where the psalmist has come. Uh, We are not very far away from... Uh, finishing our look at the 119th Psalm. In fact, we've only got uh, two or three more sections of this Psalm after this, so we will finish Psalm 119 this month. But the psalmist is, is coming to the close of this Psalm, and he wants us to understand that he is absolutely confident in the Word of God. Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160, and in honor of the reading of God's Word, let's stand. Look upon my affliction and rescue me.
for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Let us pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for the reading of your perfect and infallible word. And Father, we pray that as you illumine the heart and mind of the the author of this psalm, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds this evening as well. Father God, we love you with all of our soul. We trust you with all of our heart. We offer to you our love, our lives, and this prayer. In and through the name of our risen Lord and Master, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is somewhat sobering and humbling for us to consider that the subject, that that which prompted the writing of the longest chapter, okay, the longest chapter in all of the Bible is persecution. Persecution. Now, I mean, if, if your mind goes the way that mine does, I would want Genesis 1 and 2 to be the longest chapters in the Bible. Okay? I, you know, I, I want that step-by-step of how God created all of this. Okay? Not that I disbelieve any of it. I believe every single word of it. It's just my mind, I, I want, you know, I want a science textbook. Or, you know, that, that we get to some of the other great doctrines of the Bible. I mean, obviously all of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is about salvation. And so you could say that the entire Bible deals with the topic of salvation, that every single word is dealing with salvation. You would think, especially the way that some preachers preach it, that God would spend a lot of time or the longest chapter in the Bible would be about money and and how you ought to be giving a bunch of money to the guy that's asking for it. But that's not it. The longest chapter in all of the Bible deals with persecution. It deals with how to bear up when we are being persecuted. And and, and listen to me, beloved. I don't want to make light of some of the attacks on religious liberty uh, that are taking place in the United States, okay? But we don't understand persecution. We, we, We do not live in fear that an armed guard from the government is going to break through one of those doors. And arrest me. 
for daring to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't live in a society where if our ladies have been set free in Jesus Christ and no longer feel bound by Islamic law to wear the hijab, that they are not living their lives in fear as they leave their homes. Now, we don't understand what persecution is is all about. I subscribe to a newsletter that I've been subscribed to for a number of years. It's the Voice of the Martyrs. And, And I read how our brothers and sisters around the world are literally being persecuted, are literally being put to death, are literally having their homes and their businesses burned to the ground because of their stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we have seen throughout this psalm, (coughs) the psalmist has interwoven Let me put it to you this way. When the world and your enemies take everything in the world away from you, what do you have left? You have God and His Word. The sufficiency of His Word. And God continually says, I want you to take the long view on this. I want you to take the long view. And so God prompts the author of Psalm 119 to cry out to God in response to the persecution that he was suffering. Throughout Psalm 119, the author has referred... Okay, if you're like me, I want names, right? I want to know who these guys were. I want to know exactly what was being said. We can intimate some of it. I mean, we can come up with some of what was being said about him. But we don't know exactly what was being said about him. And that is maddening. Because we want to know. We want to know what was being said. In this section of Psalm 119, he gives himself fully to pray for God to intervene. Now, I don't know about you, but let me explain something to you. We have seen throughout this psalm that the psalmist has asked God to take action against those that are persecuting him. The fancy theological word for that is an imprecatory psalm. It is where the psalmist is asking God to take direct action against his enemies or against those that are coming against him. And if you will look through the imprecatory psalms, most of them will end up in the same place. The psalmist is hurting because he's being attacked. 
he goes to God and asks God to take his attackers out. And then finally, he comes to the place where he says, you know what? God's word says that's God's business. Revive me according to your word. God, revive me according to your word. God, I understand that your word said that there was going to be days like this. Jesus never pulled any punches. In this world, he said, you will face tribulation. He didn't say you might face tribulation. He said you will face tribulation. I've done it again. I just went over the... It was 91 dB this morning, for those of you that want to know. So uh, I, I understand that's pretty loud, but y'all are out there. I guess my watch is more concerned about me. You know, when you're hurting, you don't want a bunch of platitudes. <laughs> you know, if your child was just diagnosed with a terminal cancer, the last thing you want to hear from a Christian is, well, bless God, all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. Is that true? It absolutely is true. But is that what they need to hear right then? It is not. They need to hear, I grieve with you. I've just come to sit alongside of you and cry for a little bit. Would that be okay? The psalmist is asking God to enter into his life. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Throughout this psalm, we see that the psalmist had confidence in the word of God. And God calls us to have that same confidence that we have. Verses 153 through 154. I went this morning after those that have any kind of free will theology. If you are having marital problems... Or if you are having problems with your child, how much good advice do you think you're going to get from a man that's never been married and doesn't have any children? Okay. The psalmist does not live his life in an ivory tower in or in a secluded academia. Okay. You know... I've told you in the past, a lot of times when I was doing my undergraduate work or, or even my seminary work, my professors would say, well, when I pastored a church, wait a minute, Dr. Brother, what church have you ever pastored? Well, I pastored Squirrel Ridge Baptist Church about 20 miles away from, from uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Oh, so you're telling me that you pastored a seminary church. What do I mean by that? I mean a church that's used to having a man that's a student at the seminary and every two to three years that man resigns and goes on to do something else. Okay? And so they're used to not having leadership. 
If you know that I'm going to be gone in two to three years, how many, how many changes are you going to let me make? Okay. And, and so these men would try to give us advice on ministry that they had never faced. I look at people all the time and some of the things that, that a pastor deals with, and, and, and I'll say it to Angie, sweetheart, they don't teach you how to deal with this in seminary. There's no courses on this in seminary. All I can do is the same thing the psalmist did and have absolute confidence in the Word of God and go to God and say, revive me according to your Word and give me wisdom. Don't let me mess this up is what I ask God. This man lived a real life. And so when he tells us how to deal with persecution, when he tells us how to deal with those that are coming against him, then we ought to sit down and listen because, listen to me, beloved, what he did worked. He had absolute confidence in the Word of God. He had absolute confidence that God was going to revive him according to his word. He had absolute confidence that God was going to plead his cause and redeem him. He had absolute confidence that he had salvation. He had absolute confidence that God's mercies were great and God was going to pour those mercies into his life. He had absolute confidence that the ordinances of God were true and they were trustworthy. He had absolute absolute confidence that that uh, that the precepts of God led to wisdom. He had absolute confidence in the loving kindness of God and he had absolute confidence in the truth of the Word of God. In the lives of some, affliction drives them away. When they begin to meet resistance, then they will turn away, not this man. This man dug in. And he said, God, I'm going to stand on you. I'm going to stand on your word because I trust you. Troubled times drove him closer to God rather than further away. Throughout this psalm, and three times in our text tonight, the psalmist says, Revive me, O God. Revive me according to your word. You see, beloved, the word of God is a source of revival. If we believe it and do what it says. (laughs) The... These are not just suggestions, beloved. They are God's laws. They are God's precepts. They are God's ordinances. God tells us to do these things because He and He alone knows they work. He knows that if you do things His way, that your life will be blessed. So the psalmist cries out to God to deliver him, to consider his affliction. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to go to God and say, you know, God, look upon me and my affliction. 
Look right here. Look at what's going on in my life and rescue me because I don't forget your law. In my life, when I pray that prayer, it's, it, it is an opportunity for me to remember those times when I have walked faithfully according to the Word of God, but it's also a time for me to consider those times when I didn't and how it didn't work. And so the psalmist is inviting God fully into his situation. He knew that he needed God to stand for him. I love that, verse 154. He did not say, Lord, I'm going to law these guys. I'm going to take them to court, and I'm just going to put it all out there in, 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 in public. I'm just going to put it all out there where everybody can see what these guys are doing, where everybody can get involved. I I am going to go and have my peace. I'm going to say my peace. That's not what he says. He says, God, plead my cause and redeem me. Redeem me. Redeem me. You know what happens when we start getting persecuted? Well, if you think like me, you start getting angry. You don't like it. And so you start thinking things you ought not think. And so you're saying to God, come and redeem me. Enter into this and redeem me. And God, you plead my cause because you are righteous and you're going to do better than I ever could do. Verses 155 and 156. The psalmist understood that the wicked are not going to be saved. Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now stay with me on this. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident in everybody's lives but ours. Ooh, did I just go there? Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, well, Lord, I've been doing pretty good throughout this list. I think I got this thing nailed. Let's just stop right there and call it a day. The Lord gets all up in our business. Enmities. Enmities. You know what that is? That's fussing. That's exactly what enmities is. It's being angry at somebody. Strife. Jealousy. Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, this list isn't exhaustive. But Paul has given us a list from the Holy Spirit's mouth that ought to get on just about everybody's toes. If they got out of bed this morning, and even if they didn't, even if they said, Lord, I'm going to stay in bed today because, you know, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Mercy. 
You know, we're a whole lot more comfortable when Paul says that sexual sinners and and homosexuals and idolaters won't inherit the kingdom of God. Amen. Man, we'll give a preacher an amen on that one. But when we get into verse 20 and 21, boy, you can hardly get an amen out of those verses. You can't hardly buy one because the Lord's all over our toes. The psalmist understood the wickedness of these people. And he knew that their wickedness was rooted in their refusal to seek God through His Word. These men talked a good talk. Now, I want you to remember that the guys coming after the psalmist are not heathens. Well, they are, but they don't dress like heathens. The guys that are coming after the psalmist are guys, they're the pillars of the community. They go to church every Sunday. Well, for them it had been every Friday. They talk a good talk. And, and, unless, and, and unless you're watching pretty closely, they walk a pretty good walk. They talk a lot about the mercy of God. They talk a lot about the love of God. They talk a lot about being saved, but they cannot have known anything about it or they wouldn't have been acting the way that they were acting. Although his circumstances were dire, the psalmist knew that God's mercies were greater. This word tender mercies comes from the Hebrew word for womb. It speaks of the deep, gentle love a mother has for her helpless newborn baby. It is a deep compassion and an intense pity and affection felt from the most inward parts of a person's being. The psalmist believed that God alone could rescue him. And that the Lord would deliver him because of his word. On the basis of God's boundless compassion, the psalmist called on the Lord to give his urgent attention to his desperate situation. Serious or prolonged suffering can lead us to believe that we're all alone, that God doesn't care. Nothing could be further from the truth, beloved. We should never doubt that God sees our pain and that He is aware of what we're going through. We need to believe what God tells us in His Word. He loves us more than we can comprehend. Look at how Peter puts it in First Peter. Uh, five, is it First Peter five? Yeah, First Peter five. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Listen to me, beloved. Do you understand what Peter's saying? Let me try to help you understand. Right after that comma, after the word God, put the word so in there. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. God will take care of our situations in his time, casting the better part of your anxiety on him. Don't you wish God would let us keep some of it? We say we do. We act like we do, but we really don't. Cast all your anxiety on Him because 
He cares for you. God wants to do something about this. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you understand what Paul just said? He's not telling you to reach down and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He's saying, pray that God would grant you according to the riches of His glory. See, beloved, we'd like to go to God and pray for about $5 worth of salvation. But God wants to give us more than we can ever imagine according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Listen, beloved, I can either dwell in my heart or Jesus can dwell in my heart. And that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and knowledge, or and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. One of the questions that I ask in premarital counseling, is it's generally very early on, it's one of the first questions I ask. And the couple thinks, oh, goodness, if all of the questions are going to be like this one, he ain't going to marry us. And I'll ask him, what is love? Define love for me. And most of them will do what our culture has taught them, and that is they'll define love as a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is a promise. Love is a covenant. Love is that agape love that's spoken of in the New Testament that says, I will love you because I said I would. It has nothing to do with anything other than, I will love you because I said I would. Now, try to explain that. Try to explain love. Try to explain the way that you feel for your husband or your wife or your child. You can't. There just aren't words. But Paul says that if we'll get all of this mess out of our life, that if we would pray that God would grant to us according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the uh, inner man, that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that we would be filled up to all the fullness of God. Beloved, wrap your mind around that for a minute. And understand Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, guess what the psalmist is going through? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. 
For I am convinced, <coughs> excuse me, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, listen to me, beloved. This isn't part of this sermon, but I'm going to throw it in for free. Romans chapter 8 is the golden chain of salvation. Okay, beginning in verse 1 of Romans 8, Paul begins to outline the entire step-by-step process of our salvation. And he ends the chapter with this statement. In the beginning of the chapter, he's teaching us that our salvation is all about God. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he sanctified. Whom he sanctified, he justified. And nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me make it plain. You cannot lose your salvation. And if anyone teaches you, you can. They are not reading the Word of God. The author of this psalm called on the Lord because of what he knew about God from his Word. Listen. Why did Dorothy go to Oz? Because of what she knew about the wizard. Wasn't true, but she went to Oz because of what she knew about the wizard. Why did Jack climb the beanstalk? Because of what he knew that was supposed to be up there. Beloved, everything the psalmist knew about God was 100% true. He believed what God had revealed about himself in his word, and he called on God according to the promises of Scripture. And that should be our response as well, verses 157 through 158. As we said in beginning, the psalmist lived in the real world. He lived in the real world. He didn't live in, in academia. He, didn't live, he, he wasn't a, uh, a guy that spent his entire life cloistered away somewhere studying Scripture. His trust in the Word of God was forged in the real world. A world full of persecutors and enemies. One commentator said, Persecution to the false professor is an occasion of apostasy. To the faithful servant of Christ, it is the trial of his faith, the source of his richest consolations, the guard of his profession, and the strength of his perseverance. Well, that's another sermon. Spurgeon said, so long as they cannot drive or draw us into a spiritual decline, our foes have done us no great harm, and they have accomplished nothing by their malice. If they cannot make us sin, they have missed their mark. Faithfulness to the truth is victory over our enemies. It wasn't that the psalmist expected godly behavior from the ungodly. 
He felt disgusted that God and His Word were being disgraced. Even if it became, or if it came from the disgraceful. But this sensitivity towards sin and passion for the glory of God is entirely characteristic of the revival that the psalmist prays for repeatedly in this section. And then I want you to see something really amazing here. The psalmist is using the same word, the same Hebrew word, to describe the Lord's mercies as he is to describe the number of his persecutors. And what he's saying is that God's mercies are as numerous as his servants' persecutors. But I'll take God's mercies over the persecutors every day. There are enough of God's mercies to deal with every single one of his many enemies. What a comforting lesson for us. God's mercies are never depleted. Athanasius of Alexandra was a 4th century theologian and church leader who took a strong stand against wickedness and, and false doctrine. Because of his faithful devotion to the truth, he was persecuted throughout most of his life. His enemies falsely accused him and tried to murder him. And he was exiled from his city on five different occasions. He was summoned to appear before the emperor. And demanding that the theologian back down from his opposition to heretical teachings about Christ, the emperor said, all the world is against you, Athanasius. And without hesitation, Athanasius replied, then Athanasius is against all the world. Like the author of Psalm 119, and Athanasius, we need to stay faithful to the Lord through all persecution. Regardless of the circumstances, we must never back down from the truth. And just as important, we must never come to the place where we cease to be grieved by wickedness. The world in which we live will pressure us to compromise God's truth. Evildoers are no longer content with forcing God's people to tolerate ungodliness. They are now demanding that we accept and even embrace conduct that brazenly violates God's word. Even when we are outnumbered and overpowered, we must remain true to God's word, whatever the consequences. Verses 159 through 160. The psalmist asked God to look at his love for the word of God and then to bring revival into his life on the basis of God's loving kindness instead of upon the basis of his own merit. He knows that revival is never deserved or earned, but is given from the loving kindness of God. And he concludes this section by stressing once more his love for God's Word. He began his prayer by asking God to consider his suffering, and he ended it by asking God to consider his love for God's eternal precepts. He stated plainly that God's word is true from the beginning and in its entirety. 
In other words, there are no errors in the Word of God. Because God's laws and promises are righteous and eternal, they have always proven true, and therefore he expected no less in his private or his present crisis. We have to embrace God's word. We have to cling to it more tightly than we ever have in the past. When we do, Satan will be relentless in trying to influence our thinking. He will be relentless in trying to convince us that God does not love us and that His Word is not true. We, in turn, have to fight back. And we have to fight back against Him with the double-edged sword of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know, a number of years ago, it was really popular to, to ask, what would Jesus do? And it came kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, passe. And a lot of people, you know, turned that into something it, it never should have been turned into. That's exactly what Paul is saying, that we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How would Jesus respond to whatever situation I'm in? We need to ask God to use whatever persecution we're going through to forge our faith, to intensify our passion for His Word, and thereby increase our confidence in it. Will we, beloved, have confidence in the Word of God.